Good evening. I'm Jose Bowen, president of Goucher College. It's my great pleasure uh, to welcome you tonight for Goucher's annual uh, Myra Berman Kurtz Seminar Series. This notable speaker series was endowed by the late Myra Berman Kurtz, Goucher class of 1966, and her husband, Stuart Kurtz, uh, to inspire our undergraduate students to pursue careers in a variety of fields. As we know, our students are undoubtedly well prepared for successful and satisfying careers in many disciplines and in many capacities, uh, thanks to the stellar liberal arts education they receive here uh, at Goucher College. Uh, and we are especially proud of our long tradition um, of excellence in the sciences. Uh, so Mr. Kurtz is here tonight uh, with his wife, Gail Oster, and please join me in thanking him um, for giving our community members, especially all of our students here uh, tonight, the opportunity uh, to listen and learn. Thank you so much. So our speaker tonight, Dr. Janice Gabrilov, Goucher class of 1973. Uh, She's the James F. Holland Professor of Medicine and Oncological Sciences at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, from which she also earned her medical degree. She majored, of course, in chemistry at Goucher, the best major. And <laughs> Sorry, there you go. Second only to biology. Poor physicists, all right. Um, <laughs> she also received an honorary doctorate from Goucher in 1990. Uh, Dr. Garbalov is a world-renowned expert on the role of blood cell growth factors and their role in treating blood cell disorders and leukemia and in combating the life-threatening side effects of chemotherapy. Uh, during her talk, she'll make the case that the field of medicine um, reflects an intersection between humanities and science and offers endless opportunities uh, for growth and personal fulfillment. Please help me. In, in welcoming Dr. Garbalov back to campus and thanking her for her visit to campus all day and especially for tonight's presentation. Thank you. You clap now. <laughs> so it really is a singular pleasure to be here, to be back on campus. Um, I enjoyed immensely the opportunity of meeting with uh, several faculty and with the uh, post -back students and select students in chemistry and biology earlier today. Um, it's something that uh, inspires me and allows me to uh, constantly uh, renew my thinking process uh, by sharing and understanding uh, the concerns and challenges that students uh, face and also uh, their insights, uh, which I find inspiring. So um, I think the educational process in that regard is, is so meaningful. So I'm really grateful to have been invited to do this. I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Kurtz for uh, having this uh, seminar series and allowing me to share a story uh, that hopefully you will find elements of meaningful and potentially uh, provide some insights that will be of use to you in your own career development. So I've titled my talk, Harnessing Inspired Imagination, Moving Beyond Nancy Drew and Iolanthe, in, in part to just get you here. I wanted to have some exciting title, but actually there is a message here, and I will, I will come to it uh, shortly. 
I wanted to first just outline briefly the journey or the conversation that we're going to have this evening uh, by delineating the roadmap of where I'm going to start and where I'm going to end. And then hopefully uh, enable us to have some uh, questions that I might be able to address. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own background, where I came from, uh, my own personal history, which set the stage for my entree into the Goucher educational community and how it impacted my growth and put me on a trajectory uh, in the medical field and talk specifically about particular role models. So we'll get to that Iolanthe and Nancy Drew. Uh, I'm going to talk about my own pre-Goucher attributes, strengths, weaknesses, what I was good at, what I wasn't, uh, and how uh, and what the impact of the Goucher educational experience was in helping me really round out those abilities and potentially uh, launch me uh, in a direction that would enable me to succeed in achieving perhaps what I was capable of truly doing. Um, I'm going to talk about the field of medicine and the importance of mentorship. That's a recurring theme throughout my comments this evening. And then I'll talk about discovery science that I pursued, which led me to a path of uh, my role as an educator. So again, a, a renewal, an uh, a iterative process in which we are constantly reinventing ourselves throughout our careers and facing new challenges as we confront new questions to develop new skills. So my home. I grew up in a grounded urban upbringing in New York City. Uh, Manhattan uh, is really uh, was my home and continues to be uh, with a reformed Jewish identity. Uh, my family was my mother was a community leader, uh, a designer and decorator. Uh, she had attended Goucher for two years in the in the past uh, and in her time in her period wanted to be an architect. Uh, and although she had a very supportive family, it was not really looked upon as a career choice uh, for women in those days, in that day. My father was an endocrinologist uh, and a physician scientist, and I had an older sister. I went to a progressive private school in New York City, Ethical Culture, which practiced new math, the triangle plus a square equals a circle, uh, and, and taught us to be uh, inventive. Uh, uh, for sure. Uh, but it was a pressured environment as you moved on in, in that process uh, in the New York City uh, culture and climate uh, that perhaps did not allow me to uh, really uh, fulfill my uh, immediate uh, potential. My role models included my parents. My mother, who was passionate, creative, artistic, headstrong, fiercely loyal, and loving and my father, who was an immense influence on me ultimately, was understating, understated, self-effacing, magnanimous, sunny, always looking at the world as the glass half full, which I like to think I share, uh, and believed that actions spoke louder than words. He was caring and he was wise. And then I had Iolanthe my all-knowing sister who had a degree in KIA. That stands for a PhD in know-it-all. <laughs> my sister actually played the, one of the lead roles in Iolanthe. Uh, she was the queen of the fairies. 
And Iolanthe, uh, the um, uh, other lead character in this, is a violet and is constantly uh, going against some of the rules and perhaps misbehaving in terms of what is the expected norms. But the queen of the fairies always saves her and helps her uh, avoid harm. And so my sister was really my advocate. Uh, she was one who spoke for me before I would speak. And in fact, I spoke, believe it or not, I spoke late in life, uh, at a later age than expected, because my sister solved all my problems for me. And that was a blessing, but also a potential challenge as I moved ahead into finding my own space. The other role models I had uh, was Mr. Kotcher, who was a ninth grade biology teacher who made every student, he had the uncanny ability to let every student feel as if they could really achieve something if they, if they practiced and reached for what they were capable of doing. Uh, so he was an inspiring teacher and was a role model for many individuals, even if they didn't pursue science. Um, Nancy Drew was my favorite storybook. Nancy Drew was a detective. And although I'm sad to say if you Google Nancy Drew now, she's not a politically correct character. Uh, uh, it was uh, very non-diverse. She was from a wealthy background, presumably, um, and was in, had a sense of, in, or had entitlements to many things that none of us necessarily have access to. However, in her time frame, she was a progressive character. She was smart. She was on the ball. She knew how to value others. She had uh, a range of friends, men and women, who worked collaboratively together. Uh, and she loved to solve problems. And she was very good at it. She was strategic. She was curious. And she was accomplished. And she really felt that we can do it. And so she was inspiring to someone like myself who loved the notion of detective work and the harnessing the power of observation. With that said, uh, we enter uh, my pre-Goucher attributes and my post-Goucher attributes, which we won't pay attention to at the moment. My pre-Goucher attributes was that I was a daydreamer. I was a terrible standardized test taker. I won't share my scores, but if someone wants to know, I'm happy to tell them. But they were really bad. I'm not exaggerating. I was talkative. My last name was Gabrielov, so I was called Gabby. I was inventive. I was sensitive and very impressionable. I was unsure of who I was, but at the same time, I knew I was somebody. I was inquisitive. I loved acting. And I wanted to actually go into the performing arts. I really enjoyed language, the power of words, and the creative process of creative writing. And I had a sense of inner drive. I also happened to love to wear hats, which I think gets to the role of performing in different capacities. So I came to Goucher with those attributes at a time uh, when actually big universities, co-ed education had come on the scene, um, and small women's 
colleges of a liberal arts type were becoming uh, less favorable. And I came because I had terrible SAT scores and I wasn't going to be looked at in many places. And so I looked at smaller schools. Uh, actually, I looked at a school called Bennington up north because I thought I wanted to do uh, uh, creative writing and drama. And my parents said to me, you know, if you change your mind, what will you do? And so I came to Goucher because it was a very well-rounded, with great strengths in the arts and the sciences, a smaller, more insular community uh, with a reputation of valuing the mind. I was basically looking for the notion that everyone has an inner Superman, and I was hoping to find mine. So I came to Goucher, and this is just a composite of the different elements I and the time. So uh, this is a picture on the right is my dorm. Um, uh, it was the period of the war, ending the war in Vietnam. I was politically active. Uh, down on the bottom here is Sparrows Point, where I went to sell newspapers, uh, leftist newspapers, to advocate for uh, the workers to, to rise up and, and claim what was rightfully theirs. Um, I joined the Reverend's Rebels, which was an a cappella singing group. We went to the Bahamas. Um, we sang at a hotel there. Um, we visited Johns Hopkins, where they hoped to actually take classes in chemistry here, because at least we didn't sabotage each other's experiments. Um, and this setting of, of the, the anti-war movement and my own personal qualities and looking for uh, that inner potential, um, I felt that in drama, even though that was what I had originally wanted to pursue, that that wasn't a field that would allow me to develop the type of socially constructive relationships um, that I wanted to develop in myself. And so because I was at a liberal arts uh, education, a school focused on liberal arts education, which I strongly believe in to this day, I had to take distribution requirements. And so I took a chemistry class and loved the idea on the opening class video of molecules moving across the open space, things that you couldn't see that were really there. It was almost like the fairy dust in Iolanthe. So I became a chemistry major. I think there are unique attributes of the Goucher education that are really were and are ahead of its time um, and impacted where I subsequently went, which I'll talk about. Um, the school valued emotional and intellectual growth in concert. They had a balance of character development and academic aptitude and acumen in perfect position. It was a calm and safe environment that fostered inquiry and constructive debate to nourish the mind. Time to think was important. I recently told a colleague I'm going to invent one of these taxi stands that you can wear on a hat that says not off-duty but unavailable thinking. 
But thinking is important, and I think we lose sight of this, uh, and is in particularly important in the undergraduate experience, time to think. There was an appreciation and an excitement of inquiry. It was learner-centered, and yet at the same time, there was clear uh, the, the importance of discipline, rigor, and focus was underscored. There was an emphasis on process instead of product, and an encouragement of exploration through liberal arts distribution requirements. So I outlined for you how I started this journey through Goucher. Post-Goucher, I was no longer the daydreamer. I was imaginative. I was no longer a poor test taker. I was a critical, analytical thinker. I was not just talkative. I was, hopefully, I think, articulate. I had been inventive, and I became an inventor. I was empathetic and sincere, confident, but not overly, investigative and discerning, and valued the performing arts. Instead of writing, I was a communicator and an educator, and I learned to channel that inner drive into perseverance. And some things never change. I still love hats. So this is, I. As I emerged from my Goucher chemistry major education, I felt that the integration of my interests and aptitude, which through self-discovery I realized, was to combine my background in performing arts and my love of chemistry, interfaced with mentors and role models and self-discovery, to merge into the field of medicine. Because I think medicine really represents the integration of the sciences and the humanities. Both are important in that field. So my career was that I left after graduating Goucher. I went to medical school. I pursued an internship and residency in internal medicine at Columbia Presbyterian. I subsequently went on to a fellowship in hematology oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I became a physician scientist in drug discovery and ultimately an educator in clinical translational science. Along the way, during my residency, I encountered, uh, I went to a lecture of a famous cell biologist, Dr. Malcolm Moore. And I had realized by then that I was interested in blood cells. Again, blood cells being a visual learner, you're constantly having a conversation with uh, the visualization of blood cells by looking at peripheral blood smears. And it's a very interactive discipline in that regard. And I was always troubled by the fact that uh, patients who suffered so much from a disease such as leukemia, which can be quite devastating, was actually at the same time so interesting. And during this lecture, uh, the cell biologist indicated that really leukemia suffered from a Peter Pan syndrome. So again, it, it resonated for me uh, with my performing arts background that these cells refused to grow up. But under proper instruction, they could. And there was a field of endeavor really looking at specific growth factors, which were then not purified molecules, but rather referred to as colony-stimulating activities that could instruct these cells to behave and mature normally, as their normal counterparts would usually do. 
And this, so this set me on a, uh, a path to decide to pursue a hematology oncology fellowship and to work with uh, this renowned investigator at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'll come to that in a moment. So I went to Memorial, and I then, uh, after my clinical rotations were over, uh, I went to work in Dr. Moore's lab. And during that time, uh, the studies had demonstrated that if you gave uh, a mouse endotoxin, and you looked in the serum of that mouse several hours after getting a bacterial product such as endotoxin, you could induce a substance called tumor necrosis factor. And people, immunologists, were very interested in trying to harness this to treat cancer. In addition, in Australia, they looked in the same animal model system and could find that few hours after giving this endotoxin, not only did you find tumor necrosis factor, but you found an activity that would stimulate the growth of infection-fighting white blood cells called neutrophil granulocytes. And in addition, if you took leukemic cells cultured in the laboratory and exposed them to this activity, they would differentiate and mature. And the concept was that you could extinguish the leukemia if you allowed these cells to move from the self-renewal compartment where they make more of themselves to the post-mitotic compartment where they no longer can do that, and they go through the normal maturation process and die off, and this was referred to as clonal extinction or maturation therapy approach. And it was very, uh, people were very intrigued by this concept at the time. And so we actually looked in the serum of patients who were being given endotoxin as a form of immunotherapy uh, after informed consent uh, with the purpose of inducing this tumor necrosis factor. But we looked to see if, like in the mouse, they would make this activity that could stimulate the growth of bone marrow cells in the laboratory into normal granulocytes and allow leukemic cells to mature normally. And in fact, we did find this substance. It's very difficult to purify a protein from serum because serum is largely protein. Uh, and it's also very difficult to get a lot of it uh, in order to do purification schemes. So we set about trying to find a source of this same activity. And we utilized something called cell lines which are immortalized cells that are utilized in a variety of cell biology experiments in laboratories uh, across the world. And they come in many shapes and sizes. And we found two epithelial cell lines that actually contained this activity. And so we went about collecting large amounts of this and developed a process by which we could purify a protein uh, based on these assays. And the assays we used was a bone marrow culture assay that we miniaturized. So it required very few cells and very tiny systems to read. And we developed a differentiation assay, which was utilized by other laboratories across the world uh, as a readout for the purification scheme that we developed. And out of that came, uh, we ended up purifying two proteins. One 
had already been discovered and was a more glycosylated version of a protein called granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor, which some of you may have heard of or may not. Uh, it's a uh, cytokine that's important in the immune system for effector cell function. It's also important for blood cell development. And the second was a growth factor called granulocyte colony stimulating factor, or GCSF, which was a very specific growth factor for neutrophil granulocytes. Fortunately, it was also my initial, and so we call it GCSF. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> just teasing. It stands for granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And so this factor was, we then purified this factor, um, and we worked collaboratively with a tiny startup company, which was comprised of 12 individuals. In this day, in that day, uh, biotechnology had just emerged. There were many startups across the country and very few places that could take purified protein and do amino acid sequence analysis. In fact, there was only one academic laboratory, the laboratory of a famous uh, investigator, Dr. Leroy Hood, that actually had a sequencer. But many of the new biotech startups, even the tiny ones, had sequencers. So one of my colleagues was working with one of these tiny biotech startups, uh, and the name of that company was Applied Molecular Genetics, now known as Amgen. Uh, and we asked them if they were interested to help us sequence, to do the amino acid sequence of this protein. And they said they were, and so we formed a partnership. Out of that came the, uh, the sequencing of that protein, which took a bit of time because of proline residues, which made in those in that day and age, because of the way in which sequencers worked, uh, it was more problematic to be able to discern the rest of the composition. But ultimately, we were successful and were able to clone the gene uh, and successfully express it in a bacterial system, because this is a protein that requires very little sugar for its biological function. So now we had a purified, recombinant DNA technology-derived protein, and we really wanted to study whether it had the biological properties we thought that it had. I was a hematologist oncologist in adults, and my reason for doing research was really to apply this to improve the outlook and outcomes of patients who suffer from disease. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, who was also involved in the work, and there were three of us, uh, was a pediatric hematologist-oncologist. And so we were interested in the model, which is shown here, that chemotherapy, which is um, sometimes people think these are nonspecific darts that are thrown, but in fact, chemotherapy itself is really very targeted, target, targeted therapy is the new buzzword. These were targeted not to individual receptors or um, uh, signaling cascades, but rather were targeted to the cell cycle. So cells that are dividing rapidly and that go through S phase and mitoses are vulnerable to different agents that target that portion of, of the cell cycle. And malignancies in general have a higher growth fraction, so more of those cells are going through cycle. Um, there are other cells in your body, however, that are also growing rapidly. 
you make millions of blood cells every day, red cells, white cells, platelets, and the variety of white cells that you make. The most critical white cell is the granulocyte. And so granulocytes are important for fighting bacterial infection and the major problem facing patients with this type of um, requiring this type of treatment is that their granulocyte number will fall to a dangerous level, which is uh, depicted here, below this critical value of 1,000 cells per microliter. So we were really interested in whether a growth factor that would stimulate granulocytes would actually shift this curve from patient A falling below that critical value to not falling below that, val that critical line, that dotted line at all, or if falling below that, falling below for a much shorter period of time. So just going to show you two data slides. I promise. I just want to make the, the point of the discovery. This is just looking at a, a synomologous primate model. We're looking at the white count on the y-axis, and the x-axis is time. And these are just shows you that uh, saline injection versus the growth factor we had purified and now was recombinantly expressed actually the protein stimulated white cells, and they were mostly granulocytes. So it's a proof of principle type of study, and it was dose related. And then we then looked at a chemotherapy model. And I won't put this, I won't put this all uh, in detail, but we're, the important point is that when you gave the growth factor, your count dropped, but then you rapidly recovered, whereas when you didn't, the count remained low. So we were able to convert this curve to one that was accelerated and recovered up there. And that served the basis for initial clinical trials in man, which ultimately led to the approval of this growth factor for the treatment of chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, uh, and is used now in the vast majority of patients who undergo that type of treatment. So I, I just wanted to spend a moment talking about uh, the iterative process and the attributes of guided career development and using my own career development as a template. So this process that I've, discover, I've discussed with you that took us through the discovery science um, involved a number of steps along the way. Uh, it was a process of self-discovery uh, that was um, allowed, enabled, if you will, by the Goucher educational experience, and further amplified by a number of mentors along the row, along the, the, along the way, so that mentoring is an extremely important process, and recognizing individuals who you would like to model yourself after, and developing and reaching out to those people and asking them for help, whether you think you need it or not, is extremely important because everyone needs to be valued. You want to be valued, I want to be valued, and our mentors, our teachers, also want to be valued. So I think I learned in this process of the critical importance of mentoring, not only when I was at Goucher, but as I continued along my career trajectory. So self-discovery, mentorship, leading to personal growth, the accomplishment of milestones, fostering additional maturation, and then back to self-discovery. And I think that along the way, this is guided by serendipity and some luck. 
teamwork, the importance of valuing others, especially in medicine and science. Team science is the mantra of the day because the complexity of the tasks and the wealth of knowledge that we have, no one person is going to be able to monopolize that, that, that knowledge. And so the team effort becomes critical. Um, that doesn't mean that in order to be an effective team player, you have to bring discipline-related knowledge in depth so that you contribute in a meaningful way. But teamwork is clearly important. Um, reinvention. I haven't continued to do the same thing my whole career. And as I've moved along, new questions have been posed. And I've moved in different directions that have been informed by a variety of, of situations, which I'll come to in a moment. Fortitude, resilience, and the importance of perseverance. I would say half of what I've been able to accomplish was that I learned in my upbringing, reinforced importantly by my Goucher education, and remained critical to my own work was the concept of perseverance. Half of what we do is really just staying at it, staying at it and working hard and some moments of brilliance, but working hard at it, trying, trying, and trying again. Um, having a glass half full approach, silver linings, I strongly believe in it. And if you can, if you can harness that viewpoint, I think it will uh, lead to significant fulfillment. Ex re recognizing that excellence is one step at a time and always valuing integrity. So the role of a mentor, um, I can't stress how important it's been in my own career development. Uh, they help you identify strengths and weaknesses, explore options uh, with an open mind, uh, act as a challenger, encourage personal reflection, uh, enable you to find that inner motivation, um, and address specific educational needs. But as a ment in order to have mentorship, you have to learn the skills of being a good mentee and reaching out. So part of this is your responsibility to partner with people whose input you value and let them know that. Other things that inform this whole process and in my own development were family, life events, a series of choices, everything you do there are benefits and risks, uh, positives and negatives, and those choices change over time. Your learning style, how you function best, what type of environment you function best in. I personally am inwardly driven, but do not do well in a highly competitive environment. I kind of melt. I can't watch a tennis match and not worry about who's going to lose. Uh, somebody's going to lose and they're going to be sad and I feel badly for them. So <laughs> this is, this is my, uh, my mantra, my path in life. Um, and preferences uh, for your direction that you want to take in life. And all of these things inform this whole process um, and, and reasons why people's uh, trajectory changes over time. Whoops, sorry. Oh, well, we went back to the, so we're back to the beginning. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a good place uh, for me to stop. 
Uh, it is an iterative process. I've tried to give you a little bit of a window into my own career development as an example of the processes involved and the uh, inner discovery uh, that occurs and some of the challenges and guiding principles that I have found to be useful. So I'm happy to take questions. Questions, comments? Speechless? Okay. Yes. So uh, a granulocyte is a white blood. So you have three types of white of blood cells: white blood cells, red cells that carry oxygen to the tissues, uh, and platelets, which help you clot properly. Granulocytes are white blood cells that have granules in them, really almost like little packets of Clorox, if you will. And there are several types of granulocytes. Some have red granules. Some have blue granules. And some have kind of Clorox-colored granules. And the ones with the Clorox-colored granules are called neutrophil granulocytes. And dare I say, they are the most important granulocyte of all. They protect you from bacterial infection. And the way they do that is, you know, bacteria live in our mouth, in our intestines. They help us digest. They help us enjoy food. Um, there's a whole field of really fascinating work. If I were going in a new direction, I would go into the whole field of, my, of the microbiome and the interaction between the bacteria that live on your skin and in you and how they, how they help you and sometimes do you harm. Um, and certain people have certain microbiomes and others. In any event, the neutrophil granulocyte is like the police force and tells those bacteria, you know, you need to stay in the mouth and the intestines, okay, you're here, but don't come into the bloodstream and don't come in tissues that you don't belong. But when, those, when that police force is diminished, those bacteria say, hey, it's party time. And they will enter the bloodstream and go places they're not supposed to and can make you extremely ill. And in fact, they can kill you uh, if they aren't uh, controlled with antibiotics and, and, and you don't recover from uh, from the process by enabling you to have proper uh, neutroph neutrophil numbers above that critical value. Um, so part of the treatments for some, there are some cancers where there's clearly was evidence that uh, more robust uh, or more intensive treatments would actually result in a greater percentage of cures. Uh, and there were a lot of laboratory studies. So this is, in particular, uh, very relevant for some types of blood cell cancers called lymphoma. Uh, and so, but the ability to use those types of treatments was impossible in the pre-GCSF day because the body wouldn't be able to tolerate it because of the effects on other rapidly growing cell compartments, namely the blood cell compartment. Um, if you were mentoring an undergraduate today, um, what would you say is a good balance between your science courses and your liberal arts courses for them? So it's a for that's medical a, school. 
So, um, so my advice is informed. I mean, there's a there's the reality of what you need to to go to medical school, but I would say that. So I, I would say that um, first and foremost, you should do what you're passionate about. Second, uh, there are some practical considerations for requirements, uh, some of which may change over time and be better informed than what they are now. Um, the field of omics and computational biology are becoming more important than some of the other fields that used to be considered so important. Uh, but that hasn't translated into changes in requirements. But I think that because I believe that medicine is really this critical juncture between humanities and science, I think that uh, you cannot possibly go wrong by taking courses in humanities that will inform you about the human condition. Um, emotional intelligence in medicine, whether you are going to be spending much of your time in laboratory research, understanding how that is going to apply to the human condition to solve problems of disease is going to give you different perspective. If you're going to be spending time where your laboratory is the clinical arena, or you're going to be ultimately pursuing clinical medicine alone, then again, your ability to have conversations, your ability to listen, to observe, the harnessing that and fine-tuning those observation skills, I think, are further enhanced by taking a range of, of courses that uh, enable you to be conversant in uh, a number of critical thinking approaches. And so, uh, you know, in the science disciplines, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. If you're doing physics, it's overwhelming, and it's hard to maintain that balance. But I, I do think that, it's, that it is important to try to have some of that. And, and, and there are also just some, some approaches that are similar. I mean, I do think the performing arts were so helpful in my own ability to learn how to listen to patients and to communicate with families and to, you know, a, a lot of it is role playing. Uh, to understand where they're coming from. When you study, when you study, in fact, they're using acting skills in medical schools. When you take on a character role, you have to think about what that character was really experiencing. And if you're really going to take good care of someone, you have to kind of see it from their perspective, uh, almost in an organic sense. And I think that performing arts in particular help you to harness those skills. Music also helps you. I won't get into music because we have the expert here, but but I think you know I think those things, um, and then I think it's a it's it's a refreshing you know doing non science things refreshes and renews the mind and gives you a clearer perspective. So when you go back to it, yes. Well, mine's a statement and a question. Um, I was here when Janice was here, so I'm very proud of her. Um, and of course, we graduated. I paid her to say this. Though. Well, we, had a, we were 10 when we graduated, so. Yes, that's um, right. right. So, we were very um, precocious. Very precocious. Um, but I was in the finance field. And in terms of mentorship, 
I was often the only woman in the room. And I took that very seriously in terms of mentoring people who were coming up. In medicine, at your time, were there many women mentors, or was it, were you experiencing what I experienced, and what is still somewhat <coughs> the same in finance today? So I was very fortunate in going to Mount Sinai's School of Medicine before it was ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Um, it was a very diverse uh, student body, so I would say it was really 40% women even then, uh, so that it was you know quite a balanced view. Um, I, I know that uh, inequity exists in the world. And I don't look at the world with rose-colored glasses, but I also don't look for that in how I interact. So I, I've been very fortunate in my own career, I would say, that either it was the one area that I had a blind spot and didn't notice that I was being uh, uh, pushed aside. I, I found really wonderful, talented, capable men who were fabulous mentors. And I found actually that many of my female colleagues, there is a, uh, an acknowledgment in medicine. And in fact, I was sponsored for um, uh, uh, an American Academy of, uh, um, of Medicine that, that uh, does professional development groups. And one of the, the recognized uh, issues in, in medicine was that women did not always help other women. Uh, and in fact, I made it a point to really not only help really good men who were coming along, but I made it a special point to, re you know, from that experience to reach out to my female colleagues. And it helped me, sorry, my, I forgot to throw my phone off. Um, it helped me recognize that, um, you know, what we do, you know, when you're first starting out, you think you're going to climb the mountain, you're going to be at the top of the mountain, you've accomplished, you've come, you're chief of the honcho. But really what, what success is about is really each interaction that you have and each person uh, who positively affects you and you positively affect them. And if you take it one at a time, it's all those ones that add up to a huge impact. And that's very meaningful. And so as I've gotten older, maybe a little wiser, I, that's how I look at it. Um, I've certainly run across uh, people that were not very supportive and, frankly, unsupportive, uh, who sabotaged, and, but I tried to take the high road. And I think that's where my family roots helped me. Um, I had sounding boards. I have a wonderful husband and family. and. Um, was able to traverse those by taking the high road in those situations and trying to make sure that I did not become guilty of the same thing. So I think it's very easy to point to others, but part of learning from those experiences is decide how you will not be. It's very easy to become like that yourself. I wanted to thank you for your remarks, which uh, were very inspiring. I spent 20 years of my life teaching at university, and so I know exactly of what you speak when you talk about uh, mentoring and mentee and mentor relationships. 
Uh, I'm the proud parent of a Goucher student now and the beneficiary spouse of a Goucher alum uh, who has uh, put up with me for more than three decades. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions, if I may. One of them <coughs> goes in, especially in the professional context, uh, for you, medicine, for me, law. When you see um, young students, uh, young in the sense that they've just come into the profession, they're earning their spurs, and you feel the capacity that the student holds, you know how far they can go because you sense it. Uh, where do you find the balance to either spur them on to really excel or pull in the reins a little bit, uh, throttle back so that they have more reserve to cruise at altitude 65,000 feet, figuratively speaking, rather than 30,000 feet, figuratively speaking? That's question one. And the second one, one of my closest family members um, suffered from um, pernicious leukemia. And he succumbed to the disease. We had a conversation, and he was a physician and a surgeon himself. And he explained to me, I said, well, why is it not possible to just keep on giving you uh, transfusions? It should be possible to replace the blood. He said, no, you don't understand. Transfusions don't do it. And he never could really understand. The he never could explain to me the relationship between the term pernicious and leukemia. I said, all diseases are ultimately fatal. Life is, comes to an end. But what exactly is pernicious about leukemia if leukemia itself is not pernicious, if I haven't confused you enough with the question? So perhaps without, um, uh, perhaps we can talk about that sure. afterwards. Sure. Um, there's, there's pernicious anemia, and there's also acute leukemia, and they're different. And so um, I think there are diseases where you don't make blood cells properly, and there, in some cases, you can replenish that. But the replenishment leads to other problems. In the case of anemia, uh, if you transfuse indefinitely, you develop large stores of iron. And that itself can impair many organs uh, and impair your ability to fight infection. Um, there are many consequences of leukemia, which is a little bit beyond this. In terms of your question about mentorship, so I think there are, there are many, many ways I go about this. So um, I've been involved in uh, at the fellowship level for hematology oncology fellowship. Uh, I direct a clinical research education program in the graduate school. We have a certificate, a master's, a PhD in clinical translational science. And um, depending uh, on the stage of development, we have stage and learner level, uh, because I, I, you know, I have many educators in the room. You know about Bloom's taxonomy, and certainly we know a lot about how the brain functions and how people learn. And so there's learner level expectations and learner level conversations about your own career development. But there's a movement afoot already established by the NIH to utilize what are called in, uh, individual career development plans, or IDPs. And we, even before this were, was required, um, I've used and developed in my own role in mentorship uh, a version of that that becomes a conversation. You know, where are you hoping to go? What skills do you think you need? What's your communication style? So 
we do do communicate. There, there are some problem-based manners in which students can really come to grips with their learning, with their uh, communication style. Not everybody communicates the same way. Some people are right in your face, and other people are uh, more contemplative, uh, a little more, a little quieter, but they're thinking nevertheless. And having some insight into their own style is important. Um, so it should, so that that feedback becomes a struct, has a structured format, and allows the student to participate uh, and take ownership of that process. Um, obviously, there's lots of ways to have a conversation when somebody wants to do something perhaps that's not their skill set. And, uh, you know, I believe in the feedback sandwich, right? Everybody, it said, everybody has some superman in, or superwoman inside of them. And helping people recognize what they're really good at and maybe not feel so badly about what they're not so good at. And that sometimes what they aspire to is not a good match, just like there are certain educational environments that are not a good match for the learner's style. And so that's, that's how we, those are the conversations that I try to utilize in the programs that I've directed and the people that I work with or people I've mentored in when I had my own laboratory. I no longer have my own laboratory, but when I had my own laboratory, that's how I tried to approach it. Thank you very much. May I ask a, a short question which might have a long answer, and it's, I don't mean to be in, in, intrusive in any way, but um, because I had a, a medicine in my family background, I always was intrigued by the um, spiritual side. and. And then as I got to be a caregiver, sadly, for some of my family members uh, um, who passed away, it seemed that one little thing in our body could be a linchpin for getting better or not getting better. And sometimes it would spiral. You'd see you know, one thing after the other in the hospital go, go wrong. And I just wondered if you, in the sciences, you know, you're so far ahead of where I can see. I was wondering if there's a sort of amazing universe of our in our in our bodies that you know we still don't understand how all of it works but it's just incredible how we're put together and I was wondering if that ever overwhelms you because you seem to have that I, th I think it is I mean it, I, I would look at it again I look things with that glass half full I think I think that um, there's never been a more exciting time in medicine there's never been a more exciting time in science the, 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 the wealth of information at our fingertips is it's almost overwhelming. You can't pos it's very difficult to keep up with the vocabulary to have an informed conversation with your colleagues. Um, I think that we appreciate, I think we've come a long way. I think we appreciate that there's an interaction between the mind and the body. I think we understand that physiologically much better than we used to. We understand the immune system. I think the whole microbiome field comes out of that. And um, I think that I, I like to think that one of the things I learned early on, again, uh, enhanced by my Goucher education, is the power of observation. So, you know, there are truths in every wives' tale. So I am sure there is truth in what you just said, but finding out what that kernel of truth is and what the pattern is, we had a conversation about one of the things. Um, I think that uh, I, I feel that uh, has been a strength of mine is that I love to put disparate pieces of information together. So I like pattern recognition. Um, and I think that that's why I didn't do well on SATs, because it wasn't testing me for, 
on analogies. It wasn't testing me for how A was related to B would be. But I could only see how I wondered more like, how are they all related? And I could, I could see a relation, but that wasn't the question. But I didn't care. I was more kind of. So I, I think that um, the answer is, I think we're getting there. It's a conversation. So. Can we thank Dr. Gabriloff one more time? We wanted you to have a little, a little something oh gotcha to, to take home. Okay. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, thank you, Stuart Kurtz, for being with us this thank evening. Uh, thank all of you, and uh, good night. Thank, thank you very you. much for your attention. <laughs>